We now go to the year 2235, where the last sky city is floating hundreds of miles above the barren earth that is burning with permanent storms and no life. The ocean is acidic, wildlife is gone, alternating hot and cold forces take over the earth, and the sky peasants are starving. Truly, there's never been a less hopeful time. Did you hear the news? Don't tell me something else happened that was bad. Willard's entire crop gone. Locusts. <sighs> These sky cities were supposed to protect us. They always told us it would protect us. Well, I mean, who could predict that just because the world was burning, ash would block all of our solar panels? It's not our fault. It's not our fault. Any news at the reproductive facility? No, I was just looking at the charts and it's still the same. There hasn't been a single person pregnant since 2132. At least it's less mouths to feed, right? <laughs> Unsettling, <laughs> though. Yeah. Yeah, there's no hope. I think the only thing we could do is escape the planet somehow, but we don't have the resources or energy. I barely have enough energy to get up in the morning on the rations as they are. We're going to have to do like a lottery if it gets any worse. Yeah, I mean, there's no livestock left except for one species. And that's, or we could call starting at the oldest or we could call starting at the youngest. It's a really hard question because obviously oldest and youngest, they're more useless, but they also have less meat. City approaching. Sky city. Oh my god, another sky city. It's happening. It's, they it's, said there was other sky cities. <laughs> I never believed it. I didn't believe it. Our whole lives. It's real. Grandpa said. Oh, I thought it was an old man's crazy tale. Do you want to go to the docking station? Let's go there as fast as we can with the amount of calories that we're intaking. It's only like two miles. Three hours later. God, two silhouetted figures. They look really well fed. What are they gonna say? What's her voice gonna sound like? Greetings, beings of Ecopocalypse Universe 39FQR. We come in peace. We're benevolent. Quick download, because you're probably wondering what we're talking about with the 30FR thing. We're from an alternate timeline, so we are from Earth, but not from your Earth. We're from an Earth that took a different path. We averted the ecopocalypse entirely. Yeah, and just to be clear, you are the last Sky City left. On your planet. On your yeah, planet. No, yeah, hope was gone from anyone from your timeline. No one could help you based on the decisions your society made. In our society, based on the decisions we've made, we've got post-scarcity, we live in balance with nature, we utilize the natural patterns of the universe to serve our ends, but we also live according to the natural laws of the universe to serve the universe's ends. And our scientists get pretty bored because there's not a lot of needs left to fulfill. So they figured out how to jump to parallel timelines. We just sort of skip from universe to universe saving the last humans from utterly destroyed planets. It's fulfilling work. So what we're going to do, if you want, is you can board our Sky City and we will take you to our timeline and kind of reintegrate you into the Ecotopian society that we've built. So. Just this way. Uh, also, if you do want to stay here in this universe, we totally respect your choice, and some people do make that choice. We do have a banquet set up. All kinds of great stuff there. Oh, it's uh, an food you've never feast. even heard of. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know Mirepoix? We found other flavor combinations on that caliber. Timeless stuff. While we're at the banquet, we're going to play you a tape. 
It's one of my favorite tapes. I think it's one of your favorite tapes as well. Oh, I love this well. tape. It's an old tape. It is from 2018. 2018. Oh, it's old. Okay, okay. I, I know it's an old tape. Yes, it's a little old, but trust us. So everyone settled down at your banquet tables. And I'll just wheel this uh, over here. Oh, that's smooth. That doesn't squeak at all. It's sort of a perfect world. And finally, the scientists figured that out. Do you want to press play? Thank you for asking. No, I don't. All right, I will press play. Warning. Some timelines will end in ecopocalypse, and some timelines will end in ecotopia. And we don't know which one we're in until we get there. And the difference might be up to you. Find the helpers, help the helpers, and we can make the world a perfect place again. I mean, for the first time, sorry, I just make again. It's in my head. It's 2018 for Christ's sake. So I think we can all be a bit of a procrastinator sometimes. I mean, Oh, yeah. It's a story of my life. Who hasn't put off doing homework to the last minute before? Sometimes I'm better at things in the last minute. And that's an experience I hear other people have, too. Like that pressure just really lights a fire under your butt, gets you going. Totally. Hopefully, that applies <laughs> yeah, in the situation right. of addressing the eco-apocalyptic calamity that is just decades away at most at mm, this point. Do for a quick turnaround, humanity. That's my hope. That's my prediction. It's worth saying. It's worth repeating over and over and over again. We can do it. Like when we talk about this incredible climate catastrophe that is around the corner and we take stock of what that means. And it's important that we do look at that closely and understand what that means, what the risks are, what the potentialities are as a starting point. But then on top of that, we have to say to not, not be blindly optimistic, but confident and committed to following through. Because we, it is technically possible, like with the technology we have and with the amount of time we have left to, you know, not totally avert all negative effects, but to really minimize and prepare for them in a way that would end up making society better. That's like totally on the table for humanity right now. So I think it's important to not be cynically unaware of that fact to not be nihilistically dedicated to the idea that we're doomed because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy that a isn't based in fact and b is useless yeah it's a loser script a script that you'd run like script like programming it's a script that leads to loss and making a winner's script a script that leads to victory part of that part of the precondition of that is believing and acting as if it is possible to reach our goals and in this case our goals is preserving habitable biosphere for human beings preventing biodiversity loss preventing over pollution of the environment and it's absolutely true and important to underline that what separates us in doing that is not technological limitations, but social limitations, problems of political will and problems of social organization. Yeah, there's real problems with the way our economy works and the way power is distributed in society. And I think one of the major barriers to changing that and to fixing the problem is, again, this idea that it's impossible, this, this why bother because it seems so big and it seems so daunting. It's understandable why it's more comforting sometimes for people to feel like the game's already lost. Even though that's a horrifying thought, it can be more comforting than 
the game's not already lost and we got to do something. It's a relief from a sense of responsibility and duty to address it. So, I mean, like, not only can we do it, but then it's important to talk about what do we want to do? And to, like, you know, what we do on this show partially is imagine beautiful futures. I'm Aaron. That's Sean. And we welcome you to Imagine Beautiful Futures. Welcome Roll the to theme the show. Song. <laughs> Maybe something's wrong. You're dead wrong. So if we're going to build an ecotopia, first question that comes to mind for me is how are we going to power this thing? Yeah, because there's tons and tons of untapped energy. Tides move around just like by themselves. There's tons of solar energy coming out of the sun from the sky every day all over the world. One of the big ways to like generate heat from the natural world is like take advantage of the difference between cool spaces and hot spaces. It creates like currents. There's just like a bunch of energy around that just needs to be picked up somehow. And one of the good things about the world that we live in is that this is already a project that's majorly underway and lots of progress is happening all the time. For example, 99% of new energy generation capacity in the United States in 2016 came from renewables. So basically, all the new things that were being built new power stations and things, 99% of them all was renewable energy. And 64% of that new energy capacity came from solar specifically. Yeah, solar's progress has been accelerating way faster than was projected, like even by solar advocates in the 1970s, right? Like the efficiency of solar is just like skyrocketing up compared to other forms of energy. Between the years of 1977 and 2013, the price of solar cells dropped by 99%. So it used to cost $100, then cost $1. Uh, And it continued dropping after that. Between 2008 and 2015, solar prices dropped 80%. In 2016 alone, the cost of solar generation dropped on average 17%. Also, in 2016, the cheapest energy anywhere on the planet was solar power because a commercial solar provider in Dubai opened up that was offering energy for 2.9 cents per kilowatt hour, which set the world record for cheapest energy ever in history and also cheapest solar, obviously. And uh, compared to the fossil fuel prices at the time were around 5 cents per kilowatt hour. For context, the average U.S. residential price for electricity is 12 cents per kilowatt hour. Yeah, and I should specify this was like a wholesale price. This wasn't being offered to individual people. I think it was offered to industry. What was the price on that again? 2.9 cents per kilowatt hour. In October 2017, seven out of eight bids that Saudi Arabia received for its 300 megawatt Sakakas solar project were below three cents. The lowest price was 1.79 cents per kilowatt hour. 
So yeah, in 2016, 2.9 cents per kilowatt hour was the world record for cheapest energy ever. And you're saying just a year and some later, two years later, it's already getting down to below two cents. Yeah, well, those are those are bids, not final products. Oh, so oh okay, right. Someone made the promise to another person in a business context they could give you 1.79 cents. I'm not sure that they delivered it. I don't have that info. In June 2017, the BNEF in their New Energy Outlook 2017 report said that by 2023, solar energy generation will be competitive with building new U.S. gas plants, and by 2028, it will beat existing gas generation. And talking about individual homeowners who put solar panels on their buildings currently are seeing a payback period of about five to eight years to when the savings that they're getting from having their own energy pays off the cost of the installation. But in some places with higher energy costs like Massachusetts and New York, that's more like three to four years. And the 20-year savings for people who install solar panels on their house this year is around $20,000 for them personally. Solar panels are unique in terms of any other energy production technology we have because there's no moving parts. And so very little wears and tears on them. And there's very low uh, maintenance cost. Like anything with moving parts is going to have higher maintenance cost. These things, you set them up and they're basically free to run until they break. So that's a big uh, benefit for them. Also, since 2008, the world's net installed capacity for solar energy increased by about 100,000 megawatts. And for every kilowatt of power generated from solar panels, instead of coal, you're preventing one 150 pounds of coal from being mined, 300 pounds of CO2 from being released into the atmosphere, and 105 gallons of water from being consumed. So that's for every kilowatt of power generated from solar panels instead of coal. And a kilowatt is one one thousandth of a megawatt. And since 2008, we've increased the world's solar power by 100,000 megawatts. So that's a lot of coal, CO2, and water that wasn't consumed and we could be far worse than we are now if people hadn't been doing the solar thing for a long time and really pushing it. So solar's pretty amazing. Is that the only? Are you telling me that's the only power source that we're going to use in our ecotopia? Well, there is another power source or a few, but one of them is called wind. And it's actually interestingly a form of solar, if you think about it, because the reason wind exists is because there's differentially temperatured air on the planet and that creates pressure systems that move air. So if you ever wondered how wind gets its energy, mm -hmm. it's from the sun. That's how it can move because things that move takes energy and yeah, it's from the sun. It's solar powered. Wind is solar powered itself. I really honestly just thought that air moved around for no reason. That's blowing my mind. <laughs> The USA currently produces about 90,000 megawatts of wind power, which is enough for 24 million average American homes and saves 200 million tons of carbon and 95 billion gallons of water. Pretty good. And wind prices for recent power contracts are approaching two cents per kilowatt hour in some areas of the United States. So again, that level just getting pushed down, energy getting cheaper and cheaper in the space of like a couple of years. It's really cool. And I know what you're thinking. 
Hey, I heard that sometimes wind generation kills birds. Well, guess what? Yeah, that is true. Sometimes. Some birds do die. But birds also die from uh, skyscrapers, other windows. Are we going to take out all windows just for the birds? Yeah, I think that there's some things that can be done that can help decrease that problem, maybe not fully solve it, like in terms of design of the windmills. I, I don't have this info on hand, but I did read about that. But yeah, I mean, some birds will die. But if we don't do this, then a lot more birds will die because of biodiversity loss in the burning world and stuff. So. Yeah. So it's either some birds now or all birds later. Uh, there's also geothermal power, which is not solar power in any way. It's, it just doesn't come from the sun. Uh, you take heat, use it to heat water, turn turbines. In certain areas, it's highly priced competitive with options that are available. Uh, it's not used very much. U.S. currently only makes about 3,500 megawatts of geothermal energy. But with current tech, there's a confirmed potential for at least 100,000 megawatts. And it can work really well in certain places. Iceland currently produces over a quarter of its electricity from geothermal. New Zealand's about 13%. And then there's hydropower. Hydroelectric plants globally produce about 17.5% of world electricity, so it's already a big, a big player in that game. They can be expensive to set up, but new ones are usually capable of recovering their costs of setup within eight years of starting their operations. Uh, they're continuous. I, I miss that with geothermal as well. It's also continuous, unlike wind and solar, so it doesn't have the storage problem, although battery technology is getting much better. People who install solar panels on their roof now generally can get a consumer-level battery that works for them so that it keeps working throughout the night. I mentioned last episode that one of the problems with hydropower is that dams can interrupt waterways and cause problems for fishes, migration patterns, and uh, people are working on damless hydropower, which is rather than damming off a whole section, you take parts of the body of water and divert it into a pipe that then turns a turbine and then rejoins the rest of the waterway. And so it would still keep the main portion open for the wildlife to continue doing what it was doing. I like the idea. That sounds like it's, that's some tubery. I support that. Yeah, it's a tube. That use of tube. <laughs> Tubes are definitely part of the ecotopia. So yeah, that's like a lot of energy and it's getting way cheaper really fast. There's also energy efficiency which is sort of in itself a renewable resource like it it is a huge contributor to being able to phase out it's not a renewable resource but you could almost put it in the same category here mm. yeah no of course like, if you can take some of the most energy intensive things that we're doing and make a 30 percent efficiency increase that's as good as removing 30 percent of the energy or putting it on renewable or whatever it's uh energy efficiency is huge yeah, so like imagine a car that still runs on gasoline. This, you know, this could be part of our ecotopia. You could actually have gasoline-powered cars in an ecotopia as long as they only use a few molecules of gasoline right. every so, 100,000 miles and just release one single piece of CO2 every 100,000 miles. 
I imagine that the front panel of the car, like where the radio is, you like pull a little thing out. Yeah. And there's a tray there where you take out an eyedropper of gasoline and just put like three or four drops. And you have to do that like every uh, couple months or something. Right, right, right. I mean, that wouldn't be a big deal at all. You can burn gas and it's fine because it's so efficient. Well, yeah. And you could also, if we're at that point, then you'll probably be able to capture the CO2 as it comes out. Just like keep the CO2 somewhere in the car, like fill up a little tube then bring the tube back to the CO2 store and get your deposit for it because then the CO2 is going to be put into Coca-Cola. Oh, and I had one other which idea. Which is healthy in the future. It still tastes as good, but it's good for you. It's an ecotopia. <laughs> Spare no expense. One other energy generation idea I had, which like I know there's a lot of nuclear energy advocates out there saying that newer forms of it are less dangerous and this it still kind of squicks me out i don't know about this whole nuclear energy thing i want to support it and i do support it but i think i would support it more if we put it on the moon because then it's a little bit away from it that makes me think could you get orbit power is there a way to somehow get energy from the rotation of the earth or the rotation of the earth around the sun oh yeah i wonder it's a type of solar power because you're rotating around the sun. So lots of options for energy. Just going into the rest of this, we have an ecotopia. We're going to have tons of energy. So Yeah, and actually we're going to have such high levels of energy efficiency. We're going to have less energy generated in our ecotopia than is currently generated, but with more abundance for everyone forever. And it's going to be easy. Today on Confirmation Bias News from I Fucking Love Science, seven animals saved from near extinction. Here are seven animals from the United States who benefited from the 1973 Endangered Species Act. Number one, the brown pelican. In 1968, there were 1,276 brown pelicans. Oh no, that's not enough. Well, luckily now there's nearly 11,000 nesting pairs, producing over 24,000 fledglings in Louisiana in 2007. Oh good. I was, I was so worried about those pelicans. Pelicans are cool though. Big beaks. Do you remember in 1985 when we were all worried about how there was only 10 Virginia northern flying squirrels left? Yeah. Oh, Great news. There was over a thousand of those squirrels in 2013. Nice. Now that's a recovery. Oh, it's almost like it's possible for us to prevent extinction. Yeah, the stellar sea lion. In 1979, 18,000. 2010, 70,000. Wow. The Aleutian Canada goose. Used to be 790 in the 70s. Now there's 111,000. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. That's, that's a big increase compared to the other. That goose really goosed out. I mean, apparently there's multiple kinds of Canadian geese, but this one's my favorite. This is the best Canadian goose. And we nearly lost it until humans intervened. Thank God for humans. In the 1970s, the island night lizard was almost wiped out by non-native herbivores like pigs, goats, sheep, and domesticated cats. In Southern Californian islands where it lives, it got so bad we didn't even have a population count. We just knew that these guys were almost wiped out. Right. Now there's over 21 million of them. Quite a turnaround. Lake Erie water snake. I know one of your favorite water snakes. I'm not a big fan, but I respect biodiversity. Just 5,000 in 2001, now over 12,000. In 2011, they delisted it as an endangered species. They said, no, what? that's enough of these fucking snakes. I feel like there should be a Lake Erie water snake in every neighborhood, but... That's definitely a point of contention between us. Don't let your water snakes in my neighborhood. Sean's a NIMBY when it comes to 
Lake Erie water snakes. Nimby is a slur, Aaron. Well, I'm a Yimby when it comes to Lake Erie water snakes. I'm an Idimby. It depends on the specific water snake. And finally, the seventh on this list from the web, Gray Wolf. I like wolves. Wolves are epic. Yeah, they're like really cool looking dogs. They could beat most dogs up in a fight. In the 60s, there was only 300. Uh, in, in 2013, there was over 5,000. Dope. We should do that with all the other endangered species. Yeah, we should do that with all the other ecological problems and crises. Oh, yeah, put energy into turning them around? Exactly, and use the power of human imagination, creativity, and collaboration to make a more beautiful world until we achieve perfect utopia. Sounds or should good. I say, ecotopia. All utopias must be ecotopias. That's true. Definitionally. That's a really good point. And that's the newscast. Okay, so we've talked about previous episode, phasing out roads. We got to do it. It's important. Roads are a blight on our cities. Yeah, and we've overly sort of structured our society around roads and like so that our cities, our suburbs. If you look at like land usage... We treat roads as the most important thing. Yeah, definitely. They're like, as much as anything else is roads, pretty much. Or places to store the things that you use to move around on the roads. Like, parking lots are also a big part of roads. Yeah, it's it's funny to think about parking lots. They're so big, and all they do is store cars for roads. What a waste. You could put a museum there. You could put a library there. Well, yeah. and that, Social like, housing. And that's one of the benefits of having LRT systems or subway systems, train systems in cities, is that the cars are constantly in use. So there's not that much storage. Like, obviously, some get stored sometimes and swapped out and repaired and stuff. But everyone doesn't have their own that they just keep on standby. So it's really good for reducing that storage space. And also you put them underground, you can put them up on rails, and then you can turn the earth back into a green, alive place again, rather than this dead concrete world that we've built. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a car at your house, but you do have a garage, congratulations, you just got another big room. You can use it for anything. But phasing out roads isn't as easy as just having trains in a city because roads Mm -hmm. do more than just you know getting you to the library and back trucks drive on roads and that's how people get construction materials delivered if you bought a sofa you can't just take that on the train system or at least it's hard to unless there's specific accommodations made to have storage compartments for large items like that but even then it's like depending on how this system operates it could still be a huge pain Yeah, definitely. I mean, just thinking about moving, imagine that you don't have a road to your house and you don't have a road to your new house and then you have to move all your stuff somehow. Like, you're going to do that by bike? Are you going to do that by some sort of train (laughs) block away that you walk your single items up to and like transport your couch and then come back? (laughs) switch at the transit station from one train to another with your couch with you yeah and then it's that's that doesn't make sense yeah yeah and and that's not even getting into people who have limited mobility and rely on cars to get places even if that's like a public transit system like vancouver's public transit system for people who can't get to a bus stop and get on buses on their own there's services that drive to their house and will assist them in getting where they need to go so you take out roads that 
without sufficient preparation could be harmful to people who have less ability. So there's a lot of real problems that roads solve that we have to solve in other ways if we want to, yeah, if we or commit, since we want to tear up the roads. <laughs> when we're going to commit to tearing up roads, we need to figure this out. <laughs> so I have a few ideas. One of my ideal kind of pie-in-the-sky ideas, maybe for a more distant future, is having sort of a underground, horizontal, lateral elevator system that connects all buildings and has large capsules that could be used to transport large things like a sofa or something like that. And that could transport most things. And if every building in the city was hooked up to this system, it could all be automated and the cars could go to different places. You might want to reserve this system just for certain times or certain uses if it's not high capacity enough to do everything. But this could solve most of getting large items places. But it's also a bit hard to implement too quickly. I don't know if anyone's working on that yet. See, it could even be something like, say we have the train we were talking about, and there's a compartment on the train for you to put your sofa. So... You don't really need a truck for that. What you need is something on wheels big enough to carry a sofa and some kind of lane that's large enough for that box to move with you. Roads bad, lanes good. Yeah. (laughs) I guess if I'm being honest, this this is a halfway measure. This is saying we'll keep roads, but just a little bit. But maybe that's what our ecotopia really needs. Just a little bit of roads. Not a blind devotion to ripping up all roads, but a measured approach, a centrist approach that only rips up a lot of roads in major cities to replace it with plant-dense carbon sink areas that serve as public parks and or things like housing, libraries, and schools. So you have a certain amount of roads, but you change the energy that's being used to move the cars and vehicles around My main thing is that the roads are so overbearing now, and just to like really reduce them. We don't have to ban people having energy-efficient SUVs, but if we make a public transit system that's attractive enough that people don't want that, why would I bother? I really like the idea of what's called personal public transit. The idea of a fully functioning version of this system would be point-to-point, like a taxi or something, or an Uber, but it's on a guided rail system that has many branch and merge points. So there's a kind of central loop or whatever would make the most sense for your city, and then branches that go off into little areas. So you would merge onto the bigger laneways of these cars. And the cars are big enough for about six, seven people, eight people, something like that. And it's all automated so they can work with each other. And you can call a car to where you are. It'll take you to exactly the place you want to go. You're not stopping at every stop for everyone else, because that's one of the worst things about public transport right now is because you have to stop at every bus stop or at every train stop. This eliminates the need for that sort of mixing that idea in with your underground sideways building to building elevator idea. Yeah, that's just like a bigger version of this that hits every house instead of every few blocks. Yeah, and I, is underground. I can imagine this big underground system of personal public transport where you're like, I mean, you could also go with um, like Futurama tubes. Yeah, with pods in them. That'd be kind of cool. It sounds kind of scary, but 
You get used oh, to yeah. it. Oh, yeah. No, if I was thinking of like literal Futurama tubes <laughs> and they shoot you out in all sorts of comedic ways, that's not great. But, you know, I, I feel like people might be like, oh, this is too expensive. This is crazy. Like we couldn't hook every building in the city up to an underground lateral elevator system that can take you to any other building in the city. Failure of imagination. Yeah. Like imagine talking to someone 25 years pre plumbing becoming the norm and be like oh yeah we just pump water into everyone's house we built from the stream you built a system and you hooked every single building up in the city to water okay (laughs) (laughs) not likely keep dreaming idiot become a serious thinker (laughs) now how are we going to get the water from the stream (laughs) make our buckets more comfortable on people's hands that's the question (laughs) bucket comfort problem solution solving that's what we're here for we're not here to talk about crazy tube ideas from wild wackos we're here to talk about tubes of water everywhere it's laughable like a skeleton of the city yeah that's possible it's creepy to think about all those tubes under the ground (laughs) that's scary (laughs) what if (laughs) who's gonna be pouring all the water into these tubes all the time (laughs) answer me that Let's move on to serious things. <laughs> the bucket problem. <laughs> but even without underground lateral elevators, if you had a personal public transport system combined with vehicles that are like cars but only go very short distances, they're kind of like neighborhood vehicles that people use to, you know, if you need to, if you can't walk from your house to the nearest pickup station, you can do that. Or if you need to transport items, you can do that. Quite convenient. And uh, I mean, you mix that with trains for longer distances like say if you wanted to go from vancouver to surrey or richmond or one of the other cities nearby in the metro vancouver area then you might not use the smaller personal public transit system there might be something that's more like a subway it's higher capacity so the the personal public transport system isn't so gummed up with people making these larger trips there's lots of options I really like this vision. Just when I think about my neighborhood with all the roads ripped up and there's cars and bushes and footpaths, I know that that's not feasible and that that intersects with complex problems around shipping and moving around society. And, and At least until we get the underground lateral elevator, for sure. Yeah, and the way that it intersects with disability is worth considering, Of like you said, mobility issues. Like That's all really important stuff. But I also... Just love that idea so much. This is beautiful, mm. just extra trees and just like none of that road bullshit. And just if, instead, if it like, was all like paths, like hiking paths, yeah, that, or like you have through like a city park where you have paths that are cobblestone, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of infatuated with the idea of dirt paths because I have this idea that walking on flat ground all the time is bad for you. I can't remember where I got this from. It's a, someone described it once as like a cast because it limits movement. Like you're always moving in the same way. You're always stepping on the same kind of ground and you don't use your bodies, like your foot muscles and leg muscles in all the ways that you would if you were walking on uneven ground and making on the fly adjustments with stabilizer muscles and stuff. So the idea of a cast is because it limits your movement like a cast does. So I'm like, oh, yeah, we need dirt paths. But, I mean, that's fine. Oh, yeah, I, I walk I, on grass 
sometimes anyway instead of the sidewalk on purpose just, just to get those like, stabilizer muscles working you know yeah it's not even like it, it feels it feels more comfortable foot. to me to not walk on concrete and maybe it's just me psyching myself into it but i've been doing that for years so one way that we can try to preserve this beautiful vision of having a bunch of instead of stupid fucking driveway and fucking road and then other driveway across the street to the other side of your cul-de-sac rip up all those fucking driveways rip up that whole fucking cul-de-sac have some nice trees in there and have a little forest in between you and your across the cul-de-sac neighbors oh what a beautiful idea really speaks to me really love it it just really Mm. viscerally like i do want to live that way how do we preserve that while also addressing some of these other issues obviously flying cars flying cars and shipping routes in the sky that's where we're headed you need to have the right mix between the technotopia and the ecotopia here and that is the perfect mix beautiful flying cars that move like personal public transit on a grid system in the sky yeah and that's almost unlimited thoroughfare of well i guess you you wouldn't want the cars everywhere because you do want to be able to see the sky sometimes but it would be cool if they were in like lines but you can stack a whole lot on top of each other like oh, it's, yeah. there's a lot of space up there because it's not a horizontal plane it's a three-dimensional space but the other thing other than flying cars that you could do is underground roads like if we are going to have to have roads why not have them underground yeah and we need something like roads either a grid or a rails or there's not there's got to be something yeah it's or it's paths. whatever works best and to the highest degree possible and i understand there's some limitations to this you want to have that plant cover on the roofs of buildings as well now that's an ecotopia that's beautiful get some trees up there that's great i love that maybe we could just move everyone's houses into like underground holes like yeah yeah have the entire surface just be like pristine just like wilderness the the whole city is like a a national park and we live in floating sea cities flying sky cities and underground hole cities yeah cave cities cave cities (laughs) chamber cities chamber cities nice No, but yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point too. Because having sea cities and sky cities means people who hear about underground cities and are like, "Ooh, no, I love getting the sun in my place from windows." You know, some people are big fans of that. They could choose a sky city or a sea city. They wouldn't be underneath the national park, but they would be above the national aqua life zone it's got a great idea for the sea cities Mm. instead of having a garbage truck come by and pick up garbage from all the different houses and all the whole city yeah everyone just throws their garbage into the ocean (laughs) sounds like a bad idea i think it would be really ecologically sustainable like just dump it right in well if all the waste is food for the ocean for things that live in the ocean if everything on sea cities is designed so that throwing it into the ocean is actually healthy which is maybe technically possible there's no specific reason to think it definitely isn't that would that would actually be i feel like that would be edifying to like instead of having to tell people, no, you can't throw your trash into the ocean, Yeah, to make trash that it's totally cool to throw in the ocean. Yeah, like, oh man, that's beautiful. We got it exactly backwards. We've been telling people to not throw trash into the ocean, but it's actually the responsibility of the people who manufacture the trash to make sure that throwing it in the ocean is actually cool and good. 
Yeah. Like, it, why work against nature? Humans it, are going to throw trash <laughs> in the ocean. We just have to prevent that from being a problem in the first place. <laughs> That's ecotopian thinking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, don't fight forces, use them. Yeah, actually, if we could generate clean energy by people throwing ecologically sustainable trash into the ocean. Yeah, if there's some way to capture the force of the trash hitting the ocean or like the force of people's arms. Mm-hmm. Or you could have a you could have a place where fish could only swim in on one side and only swim out on the other side. And from that generate current as they swim through to eat all the delicious and healthy trash. Yes, yeah, there's so many possibilities. There's the... Fantastic. Building Ecotopia is going to be easy. Another example could be if you have little autonomous bots that roam around picking up trash and have cameras on them that are pretty good at telling what that trash is. It's not a perfect sorting mechanism, but it at least is like puts all the chip bags in one place, puts all the this in one place. And, you know, the trash cans would be set up with the same kind of system. Like every waste disposal unit would have that and through a tube system similar to water would take each piece of trash and put it in its place for the next part of its life cycle whatever that is yeah i think sorting is really the key issue here getting our sorting game together we're not going to be able to tackle the the ecopocalypse effectively unless we really master the art of sorting because even if we couldn't get all trash to be perfectly safe to throw in the ocean in our sea cities, mm-hmm. you could have a system where you throw it all into a place that scans stuff for good particles and bad particles, separates all the bad particles, crush those bad particles into diamonds, and puts all the good particles into the ocean for the fish to eat and also to generate energy on the windmill. The, yeah, so- the yeah. sorting the is level re- of particle sorting is very important. If we could mix master sorting with master tubes, Get the master tube system set up. Tubes across all the society beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah. Connecting tubes here to there for all purposes. At the same time, you establish master sorting. You know, you throw it in master sorting. It's like, that is a recyclable bottle. Bing, bong, boom. Yeah. Goes to the recyclable bottle spot. If you master the master tubes and the master sorting, now you're talking about an ecological and democratic society. Well, you're definitely talking about a society where all waste products would be accounted for. And even if they weren't yet able to be used for some other purpose, they would be sorted and stored with like things. And you wouldn't you wouldn't have anything useful going to waste at the very least. And, you know, if there was something like a landfill, it would have the, the minimum amount of stuff in it possible. And we would have teams of scientists working on what can we use this stuff for? What's something useful? <laughs> Oh, man. Dumpster scientists. We have to hire dump scouring scientists whose job is to find a use for everything. Now, that's a that's the job of the future. That's what you should go to college for. Sorting garbage with a scientific lens. Yeah, even if it was as simple as first you layer all landfills over with this oyster mushroom thing and you turn all the plastics into oyster mushrooms, you kind of crush that big thing up and then what's left might just be metal Uh, i don't know what else really lasts a long time plastic and metal so then we crush it up and then we have metal and then we just have to sort out those metal bits and use them for something melt it down like metal is useful 
Something really, really tickles me about referring to this stuff as sorting. Like, I just imagine someone looking at an air filter or something. Then you're like, look at that sorting tech. But we got to bring sorting tech to the next level. But yeah, there is a lot of sorting that's needed, unironically. Yeah, like there's antibiotics in water streams and, and other drugs too. Like people use pharmaceutical drugs and that it's excreted in their urine. That's how bodies work. And then that goes into waterways. And if we had good sorting technology, and yeah, this you is sort diff- that out, and then you can reuse it. You can, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's still good drugs. We don't need to manufacture that again. That's a waste of limited resources. That's absolutely true. It still works. The drugs in your urine still work. The Bo Jogan experiments. Trained by day, Bo Jogan podcast all night, all day. What's up, motherfuckers? It's the Bo Jogan Expedience. And uh, it's just, oh, <laughs> did I just say expedience, Jamie? I meant experiments. The Bo Jogan Experiments and Morgan J. Beatty. Welcome to the fucking show, man. Thanks for uh, flying down here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot, Bo. So what the fuck's up, man? You look, uh, you look kind of tired. I've been on this absolutely miserable diet. I heard about this, yeah. I'm eating only grass. So the thing I don't get about that, do you you put it on a plate or do you bend down and graze like a cattle? Yes, I I put it on a plate, but it is still called grazing. Ah, fuck. I didn't know that. That shit you were telling me just before we got on the air, Planet Authoring Program, I want to get into this. It's your new thing, new program. One of the preeminent geniuses of the world here, Morgan J. Beattie, you have a new program, Planet Authoring. This is some UFO shit. What is this? Well, I think there's a certain point in every planet's development where uh, the the aliens show the, up no 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 the because i was kind of thinking if the aliens showed up sorry wait yeah talk over people too much people tell me that i'm all, really starting I'm to work is, on it i'm just saying i'm getting better partially thanks to you i'm getting better at talking over people and your plans and so, so all i'm saying is that before you try to go to other universes to save people the last living people in an eco-apocalypse you have to clean up your own damn planet, and you have to sort your tubes out. Wow, now ma- that's some real mastering shit. Mastering tubing is symbolically masculine, and to, to master sorting is symbolically feminine. And you, you need to have balance between the two. You need to have both. It's it's as old as time. I feel it's, like I thought of that once in the isolation tank. Have you ever tried one of those things? My friends down at Float City, they have. The most beautiful facilities. I've never tried it, but uh, walk in there anytime. I got you on this, okay? Give it a shot. No, it sounds exciting. It's- so, um, you have to clean your damn planet first. I don't know why humanity doesn't get this. It's- well, some people say you can have some people who clean up your own planet and some other people who go to other universes to help people. And it's like, no, you can't have both. Everyone is responsible to take a share of everything. Getting a little bit bloody worked up. I need a little bit more bloody grass. Oh, yeah. The other thing I heard about you in this grass diet, didn't you say that one time you drank a glass of milk and you, you had I a fell three... asleep for three years. It felt like something approximating 10,000 years of torture. I died. That's I was like reborn. Coma. And oh. I've never been a better writer since trying my diet. This diet is healthy for me. It's making my books better. So when you say mastering tubes is masculine, is that because tubes are like dicks and guys got dicks? I guess you could say that, yes. 
that, that is, makes uh, sense to me. And that's, I think that's part of your brilliance. You can explain these complex things to fucking idiots like me. It's like, what do I know? I know how to host Fear Factor. I don't know how to rebuild myself after being torn apart in a thousand experienced years of torture. So you said 1,000, 10,000? 10,000. years was it, Jamie? 10,000. Okay. Yeah, 10,000. Yeah, I don't know. I'm asking Jamie right here. Oh, that reminds me. I had this crazy dream last night. So I, I'm at the UFC, but the fight is not between two human beings. It's between two Bigfoots. Okay? You with me so far? Bigfoots fighting Bigfoot. Yes, yes. Dose them both with psychedelics, teach them jujitsu, let them fight. That was my dream. What do you think? Well, I think it's a pretty bloody good dream. But two questions. A, do you think we can actually do it? And B, what do you think this means about me psychologically you're a psychiatrist a psychologist psychiatrist which one is he jamie psychologist well there's a there's a tension there there's a fight going on there's something you're working through something masculine and, and creative and imaginative right that's why the psychedelics are there because the creativity that makes sense and masculine because they're bigfoot big men are big and hairy like big feet thank you that's yeah that's a lot of insight into this thing i knew you'd have a Thing. But do you think we can do it? Well, I think before you go and dose Bigfoots onto psychedelics and make them go into the octagon to UFC fight, maybe you should dose yourself on psychedelics and go have a UFC fight. That's some real Fear Factor shit, you know? I, I do know. Did you ever watch that Fear Factor? I, was I on did that. watch it. Awesome. Uh, so in our last episode, I endorsed uh, repeatedly a climate solution which was plant as many trees as you want all the time just really go for it plant any tree anywhere <laughs> plant a bunch of them yeah so little correction on that yeah there's not actually the best idea when we're talking about building an ecotopia and getting there i mean the sentiment it's hearts in the right place and it's it's pretty true but there are some extremely serious problems with it one of which is that there's actually too much carbon in the atmosphere right now for tree growth alone to like capture enough and sequester enough carbon to have a meaningful impact. There's going to have to be other things that happen as well. So reforestation is still good, but it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Um, another thing is there's a real risk of introducing a plant species in a non-native habitat causing problems in the ecosystem there yeah so you'd have to be conscious of which trees you're planting where it's not just plant trees it's, yeah, yeah. And, and what impact it's going to have on the ecosystem and there is such a thing as plant life which can be detrimental to other plant life it could even be something like you plant a tree that has a type of fungus on it or something which then is able to take root in a bunch of other trees that are native to the area and cause a serious damage to them but didn't cause damage to the original tree like nature works like that it's yeah. oh and also like if you just were to go around a city planting trees wherever most cities have those you know call before you dig things because there's things like buried power lines and that could be dangerous if you just, you know, down low started planting trees places, you might hit a power line. And if you might even plant it in a place where eventually its roots interfere with sewage lines or other things, like, so it's, you can't plant trees wherever you want, unfortunately. So yeah, you could plant a tree above a place that has a natural gas line, its roots reach down, break the natural gas line, release a bunch of... <laughs> yeah, continuously is releasing <laughs> methane into the atmosphere, into the dirt, then leaks up into the air. So your one tree 
compared to all the methane you just caused through disrupting that natural gas. Yeah, that's not yeah, good. The net global warming of you planting that tree is positive. Like you personally increase the heat of Earth by planting that tree. <laughs> and, and also, generally speaking, another risk with this, not inherent to the idea to planting a ton of trees everywhere all the time, but if you're only planting one type of tree, that poses a problem. It's not balanced. You can't just have all of one tree in a place like that. It well, takes what if real I really planning. like that tree? You got to plan it and you got to balance it out with other things. This is a special city full of only my favorite tree. <laughs> well, like, for example, last time I mentioned agroforestry. I didn't use that term, but the idea that planting trees in and around agricultural lands is good. If you're going to do that, you have to plan it out as to which species are going to be beneficial to go with the crops that you're growing. And you can't just plant them wherever you want. You have to plant them in lanes so that you can still grow the crops and run the machines over the crops. But if you do that, it's really good because agroforestry increases biodiversity and reduces soil erosion. And it's a form of polyculture, which is the opposite of monoculture or monocropping which is the practice of growing just one crop over and over again in the same place with no other species in that square, which is a, the, the wrong way to go about things. But it's general. something we do with like our, our agriculture, right? Is you have these huge monocrops and it doesn't renew the soil if you're just having all the same crop all the time over prolonged periods of time. It can deplete certain nutrients. It's just not good. Like it's not nowhere on earth did that happen before where land was protected from all other species and this thing was planted over and over. Like, it's just... And it's also, like we said before on the show, which is that a more complex ecosystem is a more stable ecosystem. So a monocrop is the most extreme version of a non-complex ecosystem. So polyculture, one of the most basic things you can do is growing two or more crops in the same piece of land during the same growing season. So double cropping is when a second crop is planted after the first one is harvested, or relay cropping in which a second crop is planted while the first crop is still growing. Oh, that's interesting. So like they're planted mixed the whole time, except one of them is planted first. So it's like they're like staggered in such a way that it's like, oh, the tomatoes are big enough that we can bring the... <laughs> To, we can bring the tomato catching machine, which catches everything that's four right. feet or higher. Yeah, and, and then, then all those tomato stems just die and fall down and like help the other things that are already growing up underneath. One of the principles that you want to abide by when doing polyculture is called mutualism, which means that when you're planting two crops together in close proximity, you do it in such a way that their interaction is beneficial and increases one or both of the plant's fitness, yield, or other things that you want to make better, like soil health. For example, plants that are prone to tip over in wind or heavy rains can be given structural support by companion crops that are less unstable in that way, so they kind of grow up and around those other crops. You know, I feel like that's what me and you have on this show, Aaron, you know? You know, I'd get blown over in the wind without you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Delicate or light-sensitive plants can be given shade or protection from other larger plants, such as trees, as I mentioned. And certain plants can be used to suppress weeds or to provide nutrients for plants. One example of mutualism is planting tomatoes, onions, and marigolds together. Uh, marigolds help repel certain tomato pests, 
and I'm not sure why the onions are in there. I'm just rereading this, but <laughs> this is a combination that's uh, found in various agricultural traditions. Different places have stumbled on this, so it works really well, growing those three things together. Yeah, it's good. Mutualism is good. Companion planting is good. That's a really cool idea. That's like agriculture. Mutualism is something I'm enjoying, like wrapping my head around. As mm -hmm. And also just the idea that there's these sort of like time and tested recipes for it. It's like like a mirepoix it's such a great soup you just you put that onion that carrot and that celery together get in some hot water start smelling amazing right away who knew it'd be so perfect all together like that it's just a whole classic way to grow marigolds and onions and, and, what tomatoes. Was the and tomatoes yeah. yeah it's the mirepoix of growing done right polyculture can increase bioremediation, which is stimulating growth of beneficial microbes that break down various pollutants. It can make crops and uh, cropland more drought resistant and increase stability and, of course, reduces and in certain instances possibly even reverses soil erosion. I sign off on that. If I'm president of the eco-transition, mm -hmm. I will be sure to integrate that. And if you're listening president of the eco-transition, you know what to do. One other thing that you could do if you were president of the eco-transition, yeah. I would love that if you were, because then you could implement this. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would fully trust myself, but I'll do my best for everyone. So there's this idea of holistic land management, and we kind of mentioned it last episode, but it's the idea that grazing livestock done properly can rebuild soil. And I got a bit of information on how exactly that's done. And pasture lands are sectioned off and animals are only allowed to graze on one section at a time. And what that does is they eat a bunch of the grass there, trample the grass and leave their droppings, urine as well. I think it's leave worth, their droppings uh, yeah, it's urine. worth mentioning. It's well, like, they, what, it's, do they hold their urine while they're there, Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> but it's all part of like what is helping make this work. And then that section of grass is left alone for a time. And this actually mimics the way that roaming herds of grazing animals would function in the past. Like they would go somewhere, eat a bunch of grass, leave all their poop there. And then they're like, I want to get away from my poop. So they leave. But in the way that we're currently grazing things, they just kind of all stay in like, one. You stay with your poop. They, they give them all one big space to stay in at once. And they're just like, graze wherever you want. And it's just kind of, um, it's not big enough for them to migrate in the way to let the soil rest in the way that it needs to, or soil rest is the wrong way, but to leave the trampled grass there long enough for new grass to grow up underneath and for that trampled grass to die and become part of the soil and recover. Other people also incorporate things like after the cattle go, they'll have the chickens on that piece of land for a day because the chickens will pick through the poop and eat the bugs that are flying around the poop and spread the poop around, which is good for the soil as well. Oh, because they got poop on their little feet. They stepped in the poop while <laughs> they were and, eating the and, bugs. Yeah, and their beaks. That's mutualistic right there. Spread that poop around, little chicken feet. Yeah. And the crazy thing about chickens is that they don't even go like, oh, gross, I got poo on my feet. They're just like, bugs. <laughs> this really varies based on where the place is. You almost kind of have to do this differently in every landscape that you're in. It's it's the, There's a set of principles involved, and it's actually pretty complicated, and I can't explain it all. But that's the most basic idea of it. And one of the cool things about this is you can do it in areas that aren't good for growing plants that are food, like agriculture things, like uneven land or just 
rocky land grasses can often be grown in places where other things can't so it's it's a a way to re-greenify the world and at the same time it builds a bunch of topsoil so that's really good and now we go to a tattooed father and his untattooed son on the tattooed father's deathbed thank you so much son for the presidential pardon now I can die in this clean facility. Uh, tattoo dad, you know, it's... I'd never approved of your eco-terrorism. I didn't mean it as eco-terrorism. It's just very serious stuff, son. It is, to, yeah, I mean... We were on I know. a crash course for catastrophe. It's true, and I mean, you inspired me to run the campaign that I ran on the promise of putting all of our effort and energy towards this and just really turning I'm it sorry around. For, so. uh, I'm sure it caused a little bit of heat on the campaign trail. Yeah, Probably I makes mean, it harder yeah. to run for president if you're the son of an eco-terrorist. I mean, alleged eco-terrorist. I was never like a terrorist about it. Son. You know, it helped in some demographics, hurt in others. What you should be apologizing for is all of that unauthorized geoengineering you did because... Not only was the science behind it not sound, but the effects were pretty devastating. Yeah, no, I'll take that one, son. And then all My the, bad. And then all those trees you planted, invasive species in places they weren't supposed to one be. One of our eco-gang's founding principles was plant as many trees as you want, anywhere, anytime. I know. Really yeah. just go for it. Yeah, you said that to me almost every day from when I was a little untattooed boy. Up until you were arrested for it. And for a while after in prison, too. I was as surprised as anyone about the long-term effects of our exact strategy. Yeah, but your heart was in the right place. And your heart being in the right place and me taking a minute to think about which strategies might actually work combined resulted in my getting elected and resulted in the path we're on. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud. Dad, that's the first time you ever said that to me. You know, I'm really well, you've glad. you accomplished the unaccomplishable. You know, I almost didn't come to your deathbed because, you know, the the argument we always have. And I just, I'm, I'm so glad that you're proud of me. That's like, thank you. Well, I'd be more proud of you if you got um, I a tattoo. I shouldn't have mentioned it. Can we drop it? Is it okay if we drop it? We're having such a nice moment. It is my death wish that you become a tattooed son. The tattooed president. I I ran on a ticket as the untattooed president. It's my brand. But son, the way the news cycle is now, you have to reinvent yourself to stay relevant. I've told you my philosophy on this before. Your tattoos are cool. I'm not saying they're not cool, okay? Well, I'm not like saying they're saying not cool. It seems like you're saying that you don't think I'm very alternative at all. You're, you're alternative, you're hip, you're, you were a great father in a lot of ways. But I think you can be cool in a lot of different ways, and you don't need tattoos to be cool. Okay? And that's just my position. You already know my position. Please, you don't have a lot of time left. Don't make this your death wish. Well, I, I can feel that death is very close. And it's in this key moment I decide whether or not to let my son be who he wants to be on his own terms. Or if I artificially push my son into being inorganically like me. I'm trying to decide whether or not I want this to be my death wish. I don't know what else to ask for, though. What you know, I, I have a last request. Of me? Yeah, of you. Would, you, would you let me give you a hug? Asking a favor of a dying man? Shouldn't this be about me? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I shouldn't make this about me just because my dad's dying. You know, you're... My last wish 
is that you come over here and give me a big hug. You mean it? Yes, son. I love you. I'm proud of you. Aw. All right. Try not to die while you're hugging me. Mm, That'd be creepy. Hug. Can you imagine if I died right when you were hugging me? Like you put me down and I'm a dead man? Yeah, well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Hug's over. Yep. You're still alive. (laughs) He's really dead. (laughs) Well, I have a country to run. This untattooed president's work is uh, far from finished. Sir, there's a situation developing in the Middle East. Is it a good situation or a bad situation? A really good situation. You've got to check it out, sir. Oh, good. I need something to cheer me up. Had an emotional roller coaster over the past few minutes. Uh, situation room? I think we should get your boots right on the ground. All right, let's hop on the solar powered plane. We can talk about ecotopias all day, and we probably should, at least for many days. But also important to talk about, like, how are we going to get there? Like, how do we transition from a society which has a dysfunctional relationship with ecology and a dysfunctional relationship with the amount of carbon dioxide that should be in the air, really just on a trajectory to make that way worse instead of better, even though they've known it's a problem for a long time already? That sort of relationship to the environment, I think, needs to be defeated, struck out from history, finished, uh-huh. and replaced with a different way. Yes, yeah. So, but how, knowing the systems that we have, knowing the structures that we have on Earth in actuality, like actually existing society, how do we move either through or around those systems somehow to implement the changes that need to happen? What is the transition plan? And I think it's really, really important to, to have some sort of transition plan to have some sort of idea of how we get from this dysfunctional society to a functional society and how we avoid the possibility of completely destroying ourselves. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's important to have ideas for what transition might look like or, you know, milestones that you know that you want to hit. But when people start talking about a transition plan... You know, for a long time, I was just like, oh, that's a toughie. (laughs) That's hard. But kind of now I'm like, like, what do you mean by that? Like, this is the first action that must be taken. This is the second action that must be taken. And me and a group of other people as thinkers about this are going to sit down and sketch it out and then everyone should follow it or at least use it as a guideline. Like, how does this group of people know all the things that we need to do to get there? I don't know what the uh, plan or like here's you have to present a plan or your idea doesn't. I feel like it's a weird, wrong way to think about it. No, I don't. I, I, I have this. I think the plan needs to be open to change with new information, obviously. Right. You're not going to have a perfectly detailed plan. But so like I was thinking about this this summer because there's like ecological socialism or like municipal socialism. They used to call socialism as an insult because mm-hmm. it takes a long time. If you had like a confederation of municipalities that were moving towards more ecological principles and forming a network between them, that's good. It might take a while. We don't have a lot of time. Oh my God, we're all about to die. We need a transition plan. We need to do something big and fast and like sweeping. And we need to like mobilize human resources in a warlike effort towards like 
like you were saying before we were recording about like a wartime economy. So just to take it to a cartoonish extreme, let's say there's a five-year incubation period where like over the next five years, we're going to convince everyone that the next step is the right idea. Right. The five years after that is a full mobilization of human resources towards ecological ends and also halting all deeply unecological things, at least a temporary basis, while systems are being reevaluated. This is a process that all of humanity participates in to the highest degree possible because of their various expertise, their local expertise, things like that. And it's something that everyone's aware of and is somehow all on board with. Like, just just being cartoon broad strokes well see like a broad plan like what you're describing there is exactly right like first we need to convince everyone that we need to do this and then we need to get our best people on doing it and that's a two-step plan that's my transition plan convince everyone or convince enough people and convince the right people step two get all our best people on it, divert as much resource power to this as we possibly can. You know, there's a huge government make work program where all the scientists are put to work to figure out these various problems. Maybe a panel of scientists can decide which problems get the most scientists <laughs> to work on it. You get people who are willing to help out in other areas and building things and engineering. Like there's so much work that would need to be done to even support the infrastructure of doing all this work that I feel like you could have full employment quite easily. There's a broad plan, <laughs> convince everyone to do it and then like get the best people working on it. But, and when I say best people, I mean the people most qualified to address these specific issues because they have relevant training, not that they're transcendently better or anything. <laughs> but something he said sort of tripped me up in a way. I mean, I'm not that I disagree with it. I agree 100% with what you're broadly saying here. Yeah. I feel like we're making the same point in different ways. But to jump back to um, the scientists are deciding what's most important to do first. Here's a question that comes from that for me. Is that sort of turning scientists into politicians to like put them on committees where they're making yeah. decisions to de together about like political decisions about in what order in what way we approach the issues yeah it definitely borders on that which is something that i don't like and even as i was saying it i kind of wanted to go back and say it in a different way but the thought process behind it which i think is at least partially valid is that for this specific thing, because we have so little time, the climate scientists, specifically people studying this, would be the ones who would know what's the most important thing to do first. And there might be competing opinions, and it's not just like we would do one thing at a time. Hopefully we'd be tackling everything at once. But it may be in terms of relative resource distribution. And maybe this could even be a voting with their feet thing. I don't know. Like I'm not saying only scientists should make those decisions. I guess what I should have said is in making those decisions, their expertise on what's most important should be something we all consider highly when we democratically make those decisions because i definitely don't want like like dictator scientists or anything it's funny that you have to say that but we do live in a society where you have to politically say and you listen to the scientists oh oh i thought you were gonna say it's fun we live in a society where you have to say and they shouldn't be dictators yeah a nice middle ground thing between two extremes on one hand you neither listen to them nor are they dictators 
on one hand, you do listen to them and they are dictators. And right there, comfortably in the middle, centrism, you do listen, but they're not dictators. <laughs> the sweet spot. But yeah, like just a bit more on plans because I'm like, other than convincing everyone, I think the first part of convincing everyone I missed is defeating nihilism. Like, again, I feel like that's the biggest barrier to fixing this right now is the idea that we can't there's still the idea that we shouldn't or don't need to and that's a big problem but among the people who think we do need to there's a bunch of we can't once we get people on board with we can i don't know how important any type of plan is really at all i think that it's a red herring and it's used as a way to trap people who want to talk about making things better Mm -hmm. so that when they don't have a plan you can be like ha see i was right to think that we can't do this and it's like motherfucker you're expecting me to have a plan for everything like i don't know everything we all got to work on this together and the people who know the most about i don't know anything about this stuff i read about it for a few weeks for a podcast and i'm like just talking about what I've heard and what I know and what I imagine. I don't have a whole plan. Like (laughs) people dedicate their lives to like city planning and like transportation science. People have been working on this stuff their whole lives. They're the ones who can tell you how to do specific things and you work with them and you figure out the plan as you go. What you need is the goal and the will to head towards the goal. It's way more important than a plan. Yeah, definitely. And you want some plans for periods yes. of time. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking plan. about yeah, a broad plan that we have to give out in this episode specifically or our ideas are dumb. That's what I'm talking about. Plans are very useful. I plan things all the time. <laughs> we planned to meet today for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Did anything happen when, with those plans? The or? plans, it, it happened a little late, but that wasn't your fault. Um, well, it was, it was. Oh, like, I thought the meeting ran long. It's not your it, fault. It did, but I should have just left the meeting. That's. Oh. I realized, actually, when I was on the way here, I was like, nothing actually that important happened. It's my fault. I take responsibility for being late for this recording session. <laughs> it was, it was and I funny... appreciate you bringing it up on the show so we could be open about this type of stuff <laughs> with our listeners. <laughs> it was just the first example that came to mind. I wasn't, but like... That's an example of plans change on the fly, and it still works out fine. <laughs> yeah, this is great. This recording is probably better for it. minutes late, not a big deal. <laughs> Sorry that my phone was dead. <laughs> Definitely, we should make plans all day, specifically about things that we want to do, like convincing everyone. What's a first step in convincing everyone? You, you make a mini goal for the first step in convincing everyone, and then you make a plan for how to reach that goal. Absolutely. But like the plan to get to Ecotopia, fuck off. There's no the plan. <laughs> On the subject of the hopelessness, since I've been doing this research around trying to get more of the specifics of Ecopocalypse down and like really understand it and feel like I grasp it, mm-hmm. that it's not just something I'm aware of, but it's something that I know. Right. I've, I've talked to more people about climate catastrophe and climate change and pollution and stuff than I usually do. And I've noticed it has this incredible power to really bring people down. Um, <laughs> we're just talking objectively about the situation that we find ourselves in. To the best of my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, maybe things are going great in a lot of ways also. I mean, obviously they are. But on this specific issue, Mm. as far as the parts per million of carbon dioxide and what that means for warming above the pre-industrial average, it's not looking so good. No, the trajectory is bad. 
But when you mention that to someone, their shoulders kind of slump. They seem a little despondent, hopeless, overwhelmed. Yeah, some people listened to our first episode in this series and felt really down about this. I don't understand (laughs) how that could have happened. But like, no, totally. I mean, it's depressing. Yeah, and that power used in the wrong hands is really dangerous. So like, imagine that I'm a real dickhead. And I want to fuck with people. Mm-hmm. I can just go around and remind them of the eco-apocalypse. Right. And like negatively affect the economy. Negatively affect people's day. By becoming better aware of the science and understanding that we're on road for extremely affordable solar energy in the near future. We have all this geothermal potential, like all these different reasons to be optimistic. Yeah. Being all aware of that, but also being all aware of the downside and the horror of it you're taking away assholes power to bring you down by talking about eco-apocalypse by having the tools and the toolkit the winner's script that when someone's like hey did you hear about all the parts per million and what it means in relation to the pre-industrial average and sea level and whether or not your grandchildren burn alive and are tortured by scarcity yeah you'd be like yes i have heard that But I've also got some other information. Why don't you come and take a seat? Have a seat next to me, and I'm going to tell you all about how we're going to tear up the roads. (laughs) (laughs) And fix carbon at the same time. It's going to be great. I'm telling you. And then if he's really a dick, you'll ruin his day. Because he'll realize that it's not hopeless. Which he thrives on because he's evil. (laughs) Yeah, evil people. Need to be stopped. (laughs) We need to turn them good, if we can. At least give it a shot. That's plan A. Plan B, put them somewhere where they can't hurt anyone, and hopefully not themselves, and don't hurt them ourselves. And there never has to be any plans after that. Wink. (laughs) (laughs) I think there could be other plans, but I think there's certain things that just should never be the plan, Mm -hmm. like hang them up in the street for everyone to see as a message yeah i know to not be evil it'd be good to rule that out i'm not sure that's the best way to tackle evil yeah i think that should be ruled out for sure but crushing them and other evildoers into diamond bricks to build homes for the homeless luxury homes really luxurious (laughs) yes i don't know i don't like it okay yeah we can rule it out why don't we make the diamond for the homes out of carbon we capture from the atmosphere with machines now that's a gazillion zillion dollar idea because diamonds are worth a lot yeah that's that's really true even these fake diamonds they're making are worth so much maybe that's what we need to turn this into a diamond industry pull the carbon out of the atmosphere sort it well and then crush it into a gazillion dollars worth of diamonds to house the homeless yeah i love the idea of homeless people getting diamond houses first everyone else already has houses if we're gonna have diamond cities eventually where everything's made of diamond from carbon that we pulled from the atmosphere maybe not feasible maybe feasible who knows well if we get really experts good at will it, figure it out we can keep on burning oil yeah it's i per- mean but there's limited oil too like oil's gonna run out eventually oh yeah so not even that far in the future like even without climate change, peak oil would soon be a thing. And uh, so we have to get off oil anyway. Like, Damn, anyway. how are we going to build our diamond cities then? At least we have a couple diamond cities and diamond neighborhoods in every city that were built for the homeless. Because why not? Honestly, just a, a personal piece of advice for our listeners. Don't follow any leader that doesn't mention this. 
if anyone ever says, oh, I've got a climate transition plan, and you're like, uh-huh, and? <laughs> and they don't say, and we're going to take CO2 from the atmosphere, crush that carbon into diamonds, and house the homeless first. Don't, don't listen to them. They're a charlatan. Wait for the right one. You know, I'm open to ideas that don't include this, if I'm being honest, but... This is my preferred plan. And if you want to know my transition plan, or Aaron needs to have a plan, here's my plan. This is it. Use machines, take the carbon out of the atmosphere, build homes out of it as diamonds for homeless people. That's step one of plan Aaron. You want to hear step two, or is that enough? <laughs> and just, I mean, just... <laughs> I like to be like super standoffish anytime someone asks you what your transition plan is, just be like belligerently utopian. <laughs> Just to be clear, it's not that you shouldn't follow a leader who doesn't do this. I think doing this is probably pretty infeasible. But you shouldn't follow a leader who doesn't at least mention this. Yeah, it's a great jumping off point to your own idea. If you have a more feasible idea, you're like, you know, everyone loves the idea of diamond houses for the homeless. But what if instead we pulled the carbon out of the atmosphere and made carbon fiber board to build houses for the homeless? That's still mentioning that idea, but maybe having a more feasible mm -hmm. solution. And realistically, it's probably less expensive to make the carbon fiber than the diamonds, although we'll let the scientists work that out. Yeah, I mean, if we can and make the economists, <laughs> the scientists and the economists will get to the bottom of that one. But in yeah, collaboration, I, I imagine like building the first diamond houses is going to be a trial and error period. Like we already know how to build houses with you know, planks and boards and various things, you know, no need to reinvent the wheel right off the bat necessarily. Although if someone was really bent on designing the first diamond house, why say no to that? I mean, unless there was not enough resources. Yeah, there's some danger to it. Like the sunlight goes through the diamond house mm. and starts creating a lot of heat, which burns the people inside. Well, then we're back at the start. We might as well leave the carbon in the air. If people are going to be burning alive in their homes. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Yeah, we did this whole thing to avoid people burning. Why did we build whole Diamond <laughs> oh, Cities? Oh, Everyone's no. burning alive in Diamond <laughs> City. We might as well just left the friggin' carbon up in the parts per million in the atmosphere. <laughs> Why didn't we build one house first to test this out? Damn, that's what happens when you follow too rigid a plan. Am I right? <laughs> No, no, no. Let's see your plan through. No, I'm, I really feel like the Diamond City thing, it seems not to be working. People are burning alive. This was your plan. This is your plan. <laughs> Every, like, but there's one guy with a plan, and then all the rest of the billions of human beings are just passive aggressive <laughs> about how sure he was about it before. Like, oh, no, this is your plan. It's so great. You presented it. You convinced us all over five years. Let's house the homeless first. Congratulations. You burned the homeless alive. Damn, I was so belligerent when I first presented this plan. Now everyone wants to prove me wrong, even if it means us all being burned alive in our homes and tortured by fire. Yeah, that's not an ideal outcome. So that's why I'm against firm plans and in favor of figuring it out on the fly and having shared goals and strong political will and popular will. Yeah, and just some like broad, good principles like we need to address this. 
we need to get people who are fit to address the problems in the right positions to address it. We need to mobilize as many people as possible towards addressing it. Part of that is convincing everyone of the basic reality of the situation and some of the hopeful ways of doing it and encouraging participation in the world game idea. That's this idea that all people can contribute if they want to towards the idea of imagining more beautiful futures and how to get there and through a collaborative process a social process well, like and that. there's definite like milestones that we want to hit and there's like you said principles we want to abide by like we want to have this be a syntropically cooperative process where waste equals food where all products and manufacturing and human activity exists in a symbiotic relationship with the rest of nature so it's like there's nature pre-humans and then human and their nature and then it all comes together to form one fulfilled nature of a third kind where we mobilize technology and our understanding of technology to the highest degree and our understanding of ecology to the highest degree and do technological biomimicry to take the features of nature which have evolved to have various efficiencies over thousands and thousands of years and then we apply that to our design principles by studying nature and understanding nature better and becoming a better extension of nature and finding ways to make nature a better extension of us as well. Exactly. So that it's all one system working together cooperatively. And I mean, like I was saying, there's there's some milestones that we do know that we want to hit. Like we want to make the earth alive again. Even if we don't get rid of roads, we want to minimize roads. We want to increase plant life and just life on the planet in general. When we're talking about biodiversity, we're really talking about the amount of living beings that exist and how much space and import is given to having a habitat that is alive and not a dead concrete world. So to get to that, it's like you identify areas that are primed for reforestation or for afforestation, like planting new forests. You examine production structures at every level and see how you can move them towards a waste equals food philosophy. Like that's a that's a concrete goal that you can work towards, having all production outputs be at the end of their life cycle, useful inputs into the beginning of some other cycle. That's a goal, and that's part of the plan, broadly, and that's a milestone we want to hit. Having all of our energy coming from renewable, zero negative impact sources is a milestone that we want to hit. Another milestone, establishing a directly democratic and ecological society free of unjust hierarchy, domination, racism, sexism, and subordination of humankind under humankind, or the idea of nature under humankind. Pretty straightforward milestone. It's on yeah. everyone's radar. In abolishing scarcity, we need to have the most beautiful and wonderful society possible forever for everyone. And we need to get there somehow. And the first step is talking about it and thinking about it, and believing it's possible, writing that winner's script. And then finding people who are already working towards making that better world possible and seeing if you can help them. Yeah, they're already out there. Like there's new things to do also. We need to think about new things to do. Mm. But there's people already out there working on this in various ways through various channels. There's various ways to support them. Yeah, <laughs> there's so much that you can do. We couldn't even list it all. But like, pick a problem you really care about and then look for people who are working on that problem already and see if you can help them. If you don't know what to do. Look for the helpers and then be a helpers. helper. Yeah. Help the helpers. 
Help the helpers help themselves. Help everyone. Just pick a problem and help. The problem I choose to help with is master tubes and master sorting. I think if we get those both down, we're set. Yeah, I think tube tube technology is... Pretty advanced already, but it needs... <laughs> we get water to our homes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a tube system I couldn't build, for sure. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even conceive of it. I can barely conceive of it now. Like, in actuality, like the exact shape of it. Yeah, no, like contemplating it kind of blows my mind a little bit, even though I exist within it at all times. But it's like all the walls around us, each floor, each room has clean water tubes flowing in and dirty water tubes flowing out and also tubes for natural gas. All these apartments have natural gas for the stoves. Ah, yeah, lots of tube works going on. There's little plastic tubes that carry metal wires that bring the internet into each of these rooms or phone lines, cable. There's a lot of tubing already. We just need bigger tubes for better tubes. Trash, bigger tubes, better tubes, sorting tubes. Fuck yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Sorting tubes. It's talking my language. <laughs> if anyone asks me for a transition plan, I'm like, we master tubes and we master sorting, motherfucker. What are you? Huh? Yeah. What's your plan? What's the dystopian version of that? Oh, we mastered tubes too much. And now the tubes are taking over. No. You didn't master them, did you? Mm -mm. Did you master sorting? Oh, the sorting machines are sorting human beings into their component parts and putting them in piles. That's not mastering sorting, you idiot. We're going to master the tubes. The tubes aren't going to master <laughs> us. Because like you described people being pulled apart by tubes and sorted into their component parts. That's like the tubes dominating us. The tubes won. And it's conceiving us as a war of human against tube. <laughs> it's a, it's we, a delicate And you're like, dance. we need to master the tubes. And it's like, no, we don't need to master the tubes. We need to work with the tubes. Yeah, we, <laughs> it's a symbiotic relationship. Humans we, and tubes we gotta together. We've got to give the tubes what they want, which is good sorting. <laughs> <laughs> then the tubes will never turn on us. And that's how you save the environment. And so that's the tape that we didn't listen to in this timeline, which is burning and barren and full of storms. Any questions? Just one question, teacher. It's, did you hear from the hospital if any other children were born? Jeffrey, you're still the youngest person on the Sky City. Oh, I, I told you that I would friend. tell you if that changed. There's no one eight years older than you, and there's no one eight years younger than you. And that's just how it is. I know, but You'll I... probably never find a friend who gets what it's like. You're the only one that age. Like, nothing could change that. But if someone was born today, they would be seven eight? when I'm 14. Yeah, but they'd be still much younger than you. You'd still be pretty isolated. I... That's just how it is. You have to deal with that. You're going to have mostly relationships with older people. But can I still have hope? Well, no, it's worse than hopelessness, Jeffrey. No. False hope. False hope destroys you from within. It's a toxic poison which eats you alive from within. False hope is the destroyer of worlds. Well, the hope that I might get a little friend one day was the last bit of any hope I had at all. So now I'm broken. It's for the best. It's better to come sooner rather than later. Thank you, teacher. Please, open up. Hello? I'm going to need you to come with me, sir. Jeffrey, when a heavily militarized police officer in the Sky City asks you to go with them, it's really customary to do it and to not protest too much and just go for it. So um, close this door. So it turns out the person that they drew for the lottery last night had sky sickness. So the meat's tainted and we had to do another drawing of the lottery and your name came up. So 
Yeah, oh it's, never, it's never easy to break this to people, but you were chosen. I was drawn in the lottery? Yeah, I know this is hard for you, but I kind of do this all the time, so... Look, I have a family, I've got my wife and two adult sons. Look, we all have adult children, I, but... I just we could spend a little more time with them, just a week, just a week. I could, eat, you, you know, can eat me, but just a week with my family. I can you? I tell you about my family? I hear you, but can we walk and talk? Because the, sure, the sure. crowd downstairs, they're hungry, they're bloodthirsty. we got to get going. I, and I hear what you're saying, but hear me out. I, this isn't my decision to make. Even a day. Can I spend a day with my family? Again, um, it's not, it's not my hour. decision. Could I, could I see them? You can ask the bloodthirsty could crowd. Could I talk to them? Could I touch them just uh, for a little while? Just Oh, I've got my phone. I've got my phone. I'm going to call my wife. As long as we keep walking. Hello? It's me. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. No, I think that's a good... Well, I didn't mean to... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't... You know, that was... I'm sorry, that that, that wasn't me at my best. And I I don't know what, what more I can do on that one. You know, we've... Like, I, I still feel bad, but I also feel like we've been over this. Hey, uh, sweetie, can you... Sweetie? Just one sec. Sweetie, they drew me for the lottery. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going right now. Oh, no, no, please... Please, please stop crying uncontrollably. Stop. Oh, and the, you told the children, and the, they're crying uncontrollably as well? Okay, can I you... I just uh, wish I could spend a little more time with up, you all. Uh, we're at the door here. I'm going to open the door up, and here's the bloodthirsty crowd. And just give me that phone. You know, as I always say when we split ways, darling, and if I see you, I see you. Got it. I forgot to tell them I love them. Got any final words for the crowd? Yes, thank you very much. Hi, everyone. I've been selected in today's lottery, meat lottery. I just want to ask, pretty, pretty please, can you give me a little bit of time to spend with my family? I've got two adult sons and a wife. They mean a lot to me. I mean a lot to them. We were really expecting there to be a lottery today. They're really bummed. I'm super bummed. I'm happy to be drawn on a regular lottery. Oh, no, no, please, please, don't put on your bibs, everyone. Please, no, 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 don't, don't hold up a fork and knife on either side of your face while licking your lips. Nope, no, please, please, no, no. Don't rub your hands together gleefully. Stop envisioning me as a, as a leg of ham. All right, and that's all the time we have for your final words. It's time for the final vote. So, bloodthirsty crowd, if you want to spare him for one week, bang your knife and fork on the table once. If you want to not spare him and eat right now, bang your knife and fork on the table twice. Sky must be melting. There's no sky city. Yeah, it was possible. My grandma said there was no sky city. I want to wait. Just hold on a minute. What's up, everyone? Hey, folks. What's 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 up? We're here in your sky city. How's everyone doing? Oh, pretty rough. Looking hungry. Looking hungry. Like the bibs. Good style. These emaciated bib-wearing boys deserve. A feast, what do you think? Thinking the same thing, and we got a huge one set up in our Sky City. Y'all want to eat? We got produce, we got non-human meat, and everything else you can imagine. It's types of food you've never even heard of, because we just invented And if them. you're feeling the human meat, we do have some of that. Yeah, it's all lab-grown, totally humane, no humans died in the process of making this human meat. It's not my favorite, but some people do like it. Leave the father alone, let him return to his family, he gets to live in the end. And where's, where's the only kid? Where's that only kid? Hey, hey, uh, we got a bunch of kids your age. 
in here for you to become friends with. The, the other kids are waiting in there. They, there's a party set up just for you. Oh, and our medicine cured the infertility thing. We know it causes it. Turns out it's malnutrition. So the feast is going to help with that. Oh, totally forgot to say, we're from a parallel universe where there was no eco-apocalypse. <laughs> oh, yeah, duh. We hop around, we save people, you get it. We got a tape for you, we're going to put it in now. Yeah, this is kind of a tape, but it's a song we like to play while you board the ship and head to the feast. So this is one of my favorite songs. It's one of our society's favorite songs. And uh, you want to play the tape? You want to hit play? Well, I'm really glad you asked. Yes, I do. Next time on Seriously Wrong, an untattooed dad and a tattooed son? Thanks for letting me get this tat, dad. I think it's sweet. I think it's super alternative. I don't have a tattoo myself. and I'm never going to get one. It's just not my thing, but I'm happy to have a son who does. You always let me be my own person, and that's one of the reasons that I love you so much. Hey, your birthday's coming up, right? What do you want for that? Your other couple tattoos? Do the whole sleeve? Well, actually... You know how we've said before how much we appreciate all of the hard work Sean and Aaron put into making the podcast? Yeah, we say that all the time. And how we've talked about putting in the budget $6 a month to help support the show on Patreon? We've both agreed that we should, but we just haven't actually done it. Oh, I guess you're right. Yeah, let's do it. Yay, that means it's going to be a happy birthday for me after all. I can't wait to get those bonus episodes. Now, Tattooed Son, it's not about the bonus episodes. It's about supporting independent content. I know, Dad. It's about wanting the show to be able to keep going and expanding and being able to focus more of their energy on developing their craft. But you got to admit that the bonus episodes sweeten the pot. Now that... I agree with son. What do you say if we gave $10 a month? It's not even that much more than six, but it makes a huge difference to them. I've heard that some people give 10, 20 or more. Technically, I assume they'd accept any amount, but 20 seems really reasonable. Maybe even 30. Why stop there, son? The sky's the limit. Heck, I'll donate 10% of my income to this podcast. Dad, now you're getting a little wacky. I think we should- 50%? I say $30. I'm going to put Sean and Aaron in charge of my spending. Dad, they don't want that responsibility. And I'm only going to talk to them. You I'm always not gonna get talk to carried away else. with things. Just $30. That's all we can afford. I'm going to give Sean and Aaron access to my bank account. Dad, you're going to ruin my birthday. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give him 10 Okay, that's fine. I love you, Untattooed Dad. You're the best untattooed dad a tattooed son could have. 